Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Hometown Stories. It means a lot to us. If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you shared us with a friend, left us a review, or subscribed to Hometown Stories. That way, you basically get first dibs as soon as we release a new episode. You can also email us at hometownstories at wdbj7.com. We'd love to hear your hometown story. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. episode of Hometown Stories, we took you to Withville, the town in Southwest Virginia that had the highest number of polio cases per capita of anywhere in the country back in 1950. That summer was eerily similar to the coronavirus pandemic we've been experiencing. Pools and theaters closed, people were afraid to be in crowds, businesses suffered. Fortunately, we don't have to deal with polio much anymore, but some other regions of our world do. We spoke with Dr. Bill Petrie, a practicing doctor and professor of infectious diseases at the University of Virginia. He also happens to be the chair of the World Health Organization's Polio Committee, so he really knows his stuff. Our conversation about the history of polio, where it still lurks today, and how COVID affected vaccination rates was so fascinating, I wanted to share it with you. Here's more of my chat with Dr. Petrie. I appreciate your time. No, no, no. I'm happy. This is one of my favorite topics. To just kind of start uh, at the very base level, what is polio? So polio is an RNA virus. And so it's not uh, dissimilar to um, COVID-19 and SARS coronavirus 2, which is also an an RNA virus. But maybe more pertinent to what happened in, 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 in Withville, it's a, what we call a fecally orally transmitted infection. And so what that means is, is that, that when you are infected with polio, you excrete the virus in your stool and that's infectious virus there. And so without like really good sanitation with clean food, clean water, hand washing, it's very easy for this to be transmitted person to person. How long has polio been around? Oh, well, it's been long for a long time because if you look at the uh, Egyptian tombs, you know, from like thousands of years before Christ, there's, there's actually a, a, a relief of a priest and he has like one leg that is withered. And the, the thought is that that probably was polio that caused paralysis and, you know, loss of muscle tone in, in that leg. So, so this probably goes back, you know, to way, way, way long time ago. That's fascinating. What is it about this virus in particular? What is the link between the virus and in 
paralysis. Have we been able to discover how it causes the paralysis or why? Yes, that, that part is clear. And so the virus, um, after you ingest it, like with dirty food or dirty water, um, the, the virus infects into your small intestine. So the first part of your intestine, and it gets into the bloodstream and, and in the bloodstream and it goes to what are called the anterior horn cells in the spinal cord. And the spinal cord is what transmits nervous impulses from your central nervous system or your brain to things like your legs and arms. And the anterior horn cells specifically carry motor signals and motor neurons. And so what poliovirus does is actually destroy the, um, the what are called the basal ganglia, the, the, the uh, motor neurons in the spinal cord to cause paralysis. It seems to me that what is really, at least, you know, in this situation in Withville, and as I understand this probably replicated elsewhere, is that it really seems to affect children. Is there a reason why it might not, like at onset of the virus, not have the same effect on an adult? Yes, the, the most likely explanation is that the adults have already been exposed in the past, and so they have antibodies against it. So again, similar to COVID-19, if you have antibodies against the coat of the virus um, that protects you from, from paralysis, the virus is not able to invade from the small intestine into the bloodstream to get to the spinal cord. And so these epidemics that we were seeing in the 1950s, almost all in children is, is most likely because the adults were immune. So is it kind of like COVID in that some people could have had really um, significant symptoms, even death, and then other people had much more mild cases? Like it was just, it's, it appears to be a, a range of responses. Yeah, exactly. It's the same mystery with polio as with COVID-19, which is why is that only the minority of people that get infected have really severe symptoms. For polio, it's, it's about one out of 100 infections leads to paralysis. And, and this has actually, Leanna, been, been a big part of the problem with uh, the global eradication of polio, um, is that you can't just like identify an outbreak of polio because of a case of paralysis, because there could be hundreds of cases of asymptomatic infection that you don't even know about. And one of the things that's being done today is what's called environmental surveillance for polio. And so, and this is being done for COVID-19 as well, which is like you'll, you'll sample sewage and look for the polio virus, just as that's being done like in wastewater and college campuses looking for, for SARS-CoV-2. And the beauty of that is, is that you know, if you know how the sewage system is set up, you can be sampling the sewage from 100,000 people. So your ability to, to have an understanding is wild polio in the environment um, is much more, more powerful than waiting for a case of paralysis. You know, for example, we're, it's really exciting how well polio eradication is working. So two of the three polio viruses have already been eradicated from the world. And so we were just left with wild polio virus number one. And the polio virus one, two, and three, could, could those be equated to the Delta variant and the, or excuse me, the Delta variant for like COVID? Is, are, are, are those sort of the same distinctions? Are they just different variants of the same virus? Almost, Leanna, they're actually like three separate viruses. And so you don't get a, 
any kind of a cross immunity from wild polio one to polio two or two to three. Um, so that's different than like the Delta variant where we know like that immunity against the alpha variant carries over to Delta. And Delta is you know, a direct evolution from alpha and from the earlier variants where these three wild polioviruses have independently been evolving. But, but more similar than different, that the, the, the big issue is uh, directing you know, your, your vaccine to get the best immune response to protect. And, and the issue with polio is again, similar to COVID-19, we wanna protect not just against severe infections, but against colonization. And so that's really the, the challenge, I think, for both, both COVID and for polio is that it's not enough to, to have a vaccine that prevents you from paralysis with polio because that's only going to get one out of 100 children who's infected. We really need to have a vaccine that prevents uh, colonization or this asymptomatic infection. Right now, obviously, with the coronavirus vaccines, it's become sort of like this political thing, and there's a lot of hesitancy and uncertainty. What do you know when it comes to the rollout of the polio vaccine, you know, in the United States uh, in, the, in the middle of the century, and even the rollout of the polio vaccine around the world? I mean, how was it as controversial as today's vaccine rollout? No, I think that so much of the public support for biomedical research that say at the National Institutes of Health dates back to um, our parents uh, being, or my parents, probably your grandparents, Leanna, being vaccinated in the 1950s and the realization that medical research could protect our children from a terrible epidemic of, of, of paralytic uh, disease. Um, and it really was remarkable um, you know, um, between Enders and Wellers getting the Nobel Prize from growing viruses in the laboratory to Salk making enough virus to make the vaccine happen within like six years, which is light speed. And we don't think that today, but it was incredibly fast. Over a million children participated in the vaccine studies to show that the, the polio vaccine worked. It was much more difficult because the epidemics were sporadic. And so you, you, you know, as opposed to like the, the, the COVID vaccines were actually were pretty simple just because it was a pandemic. It didn't take very long to see cases show up in your placebos and not in your vaccinated. But SOC had a much more difficult task because it, it, was, it might affect Withville, you know, one month. It might be in Providence, Rhode Island, like two months later. And so you had to have, cover all those areas. To, but you know, I think it, it was very well accepted. Although it's interesting that there was politics with this, with the follow-on vaccine, the Sabin vaccine, which is the live oral polio vaccine, which is what eventually eliminated polio from the United States and is eliminating polio around the world because a lot of that work was done in Russia and we we're in the middle of the, you know, the, the big cold war sort of thing. And so there wasn't immediate acceptance of the Sabin vaccine because the, a lot of the clinical trials were, were done overseas. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. It, it's unfortunate like, that, that, that sometimes like history repeats itself. You sort of hate to see that with a COVID-19 vaccine. And I, I don't know like who it is and isn't like 
um, accepting the vaccine. It certainly doesn't make sense to me like that it should be a Republican Democratic thing. Cause I think like both Republicans and Democrats just take pride that this was like the federal government that did this. You know, it was really the Trump administration with Operation Warp Speed had a huge role in us having all these vaccines. And it's been the Biden administration that has really, you know, rolled it out and, and, and gotten it to the population. So it seems like we all should be like, like really happy and proud, like that these vaccines, you know, originated in the U.S. Looking back, do we have any sense of rhyme or reason as to how polio developed, when and where it had these sporadic outbreaks? Is there any clarity with time? There's not to me at all, Leanna. And I'd say the same thing for outbreaks of, of influenza back in you know, 1918, 1919. You know, there, there would be an outbreak in Baltimore, and then like you know, a month later, there'd be an outbreak in Portland, Oregon. And I don't think anyone has ever understood why that is. Um, I, I think that with more recent epidemiology, like the, the SARS epidemic 20 years ago, it was easy to, to identify you know, the index patient we had the first case and then be able to follow, you know, air, airplane travel to Toronto, then the outbreak in Toronto and issues like that. For, for the um, polio, I, I think that, that our, our epidemiology was um, not as advanced. So you can sort of say like, it's, it's really kind of shoe leather epidemiology. It's basically identifying a case, identifying contacts and trying to figure out where, where they have gone. I think the problem with, with polio was is since there's a hundred children walking around that are excreting wild polio who are completely asymptomatic, made it very, very difficult to, to understand, like, could, there be, could the outbreak like in Washington, D.C. be because there was a child who traveled from Pittsburgh with wild polio? That's invisible to an epidemiologist. Is it important to you, I'm assuming it is, that we take a good look at these events uh, and and kind of study them, even though we, we fortunately don't have to, at least here in the United States, deal with polio in the same way. But for you, what is the value in looking back at a situation like with Phil and, you know, kind of picking it apart and studying it? Well, I think the, the, the major thing is, is that, that, as you said, history repeats itself. And as in the present time, as we get to higher and higher levels of immunity against uh, SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID-19, instead of having like the entire Southern United States with like a huge problem with COVID-19, we're gonna have like isolated outbreaks, hopefully not in Withville, but, but there will be like little outbreaks. And, and a lot of the epidemiology has not changed in 50 years. It's still going to be identifying a case, putting that case in isolation so they can't affect other people identifying who the case was in contact with and putting those contacts into quarantine. And um, now what couldn't have been done in the 1950s is what's called ring vaccination. And so you identify that there's an outbreak in Withville, for example, and you go in and you intensively vaccinate everyone in Withville, just revaccinate everyone with the, with the idea that you're gonna protect the population of Withville, but then you're also going to protect it from, from spread outside and travel restrictions. And so, the epidemiology response to a point source outbreak like that hasn't changed in 60 years, except that maybe some of the tools we have to combat it are better now. There's been a lot of theories thrown around, and I was horrified to learn that they sprayed like DDT down the street. Um, yeah. 
you know, in, a, in an attempt to, uh, to you know, because they thought it was the flies or something. But it seems to me that we still have no clearer understanding of why with Bill, why then, why that many people. And, and that's so important to say, because we don't like to be uncertain as people. We want to come up with explanations. And then that's bad, because understanding that we don't understand is, is, is really important, because that's going to help us to you know, adjust to the next outbreak of, of an infectious disease and say, hey, there, there were things that we didn't understand 60 years ago in Withville or 70 years ago now. And um, we need to like pay attention to that and, and, and see if we can with this outbreak come up to a better understanding. You know, being that you have this leadership position and you have a global look at polio now, what are your like lingering concerns? And then what is it that is giving, making you hopeful? Well, Leanna, like one other parallel to COVID-19 is like the, the great attention that's been paid to the safety of the vaccines. And of course, no vaccine is completely safe. And we know like for the COVID-19 vaccines, we're seeing rare side effects, like one out of 100,000 people having a problem with like blood clots, for example. So, you know, far less than one out of 600 people that have died of COVID-19, but a, a real attention to safety. And that's been true for polio as well. And so the Sabin vaccine is not entirely safe. And so that's one of the, that's probably the major concern that most people have with completing eradication is that that Sabin virus can mutate just like SARS-CoV-2 has mutated to the Delta form. In this case, it can mutate from being a harmless vaccine virus, to actually a virus that causes paralysis does that very rarely, one out of a million vaccine doses. But this year, we've had about 100 cases of paralysis due to the virus mutating into a, a neurovirulent or a virus that can now cause paralysis. And so understanding that um, leads to solutions. And the solution in this case has been to re-engineer the Sabin vaccine to make it more difficult for the virus to evolve to a neurovirulent or a paralytic uh, causing virus. And so the Gates Foundation has been like tremendous with like pioneering that work. And so there's a, what they call now a, a, a novel oral polio vaccine or a novel Sabin vaccine, which went through the same emergency use authorization that we saw for the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, and that's now being used in hundreds of millions of doses in Africa to solve the problem of, of, of the vaccine virus causing paralysis. It's sort of like, it probably would have been like a, a big, bigger news story, except that we're in the midst of this pandemic, but it's really remarkable just how quickly this novel Sabin virus vaccine was developed and getting used in, uh, in Africa, where the, that's our biggest problem right now. There's no wild polio in Africa, but almost every single case of paralysis due to um, the Sabin vaccine is in Africa. And so a big effort now to, to solve that problem. And I guess to, to come at it with the, with the context and the education, because I'm sure that, you know, seeing that oh, so-and-so's kid got that vaccine and now they have issues could be sort of a de demoralizing um, experience for the effort to vaccinate, I would imagine. For, for sure. I think that, that um, it, it's really important to be really transparent about 
what vaccines do, what they don't do, when there are side effects, and, and how we, we approach that um, so that, that a mother who might see like her daughter's friend develop paralysis from the Sabin vaccine understands that that's a one out of a million side effect, number one, and that number two, that at, at an international level, we're, we're moving to solve that problem with this new polio vaccine. When did that one get the EUA from the FDA? So that was just about a year ago. Oh, so wow. It's, it's, it's really less than a year. It's, it's almost like completely paralleling what we've seen with EUA approval for the uh, coronavirus vaccines. And does it seem to have so far have better outcomes in Africa? Too soon to know real world. We know like that, that uh, in the clinical trials that preceded its use, that, that we were not seeing these reversions to neurovirulence. And so it, it, it did work. And again, it's like with like tens of thousands of subjects, not the hundreds of millions now, but, but where you could very carefully follow the virus, see is it mutating. The, the novel virus was not able to mutate that way. Uh, probably won't be absolute because you know things you, you learn more when you go from a clinical trial to real world. But then again, the surveillance is very, very good for looking for this problem um, uh, from that virus, just as the surveillance is so good for complications from the COVID-19 vaccines. You had mentioned that there may be some sort of um, help that you know ad advanced sanitation has been able to provide. Um, are there any ways in which you think that the spread of the virus for COVID-19 has either helped or hindered global efforts at, um, at working on polio? Yeah, Leanne, I think it's both helped and hindered. Um, it's hindered because the whole expanded program and immunization has been disrupted by COVID-19. You know, this is a, a program that was put together probably 30 years ago to ensure that every child in the world receives all the standard vaccines that a child in the United States would get. And that's just been disrupted like everything else has been. And so that that is hindered. Another hindrance is that our surveillance is not as good as before COVID-19. And so we have not detected any cases of wild polio, but it could be that some are slipping through the cracks just because of, of this. I think the help is, is that with the, the wearing masks, the better sanitation, people traveling less, we're definitely seeing less transmission of wild polio virus. We're also seeing, of course, you know, less influenza, you know, there almost zero influenza last year. Uh, some of the other enteroviruses that are related to polio, we've also seen a dramatic drop in, in those as well. Um, and so it may be like, you know, the best time to really just push on with polio eradication, because I think that, that, that COVID has helped more than it's hurt as far as like by interrupting transmission. I'm really appreciative of the context that you have been able to provide and this sort of wider look. And um, I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. It's your thing, Leanna. Thanks to Dr. Petrie for entertaining my ceaseless questions. If you haven't done so already, I recommend listening to our most recent episode, The Summer Without Children. This episode was produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti. Our editor is Ben Requelmy. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.